Hi, I'm Shelly. And I'm Nicole. And you're listening to the Baby Pro Podcast, where we talk about everything and anything related to pregnancy through the first year of your child's life. Every episode, we will discuss and interview experts on all the questions expectant and new parents want to know, such as creating the perfect birth plan, infant sleep, and tips and tricks for parenting a newborn. Welcome to the show. Hey, Nicole. Hey there, Shell. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Thanks so much. So we are recording this in December. Yes, we are. <laughs> and there's a lot of snow outside right now. There is. Mm-hmm. How many? Wait, how many inches did you guys get? No, but my guess is at least a foot, maybe 14. Yeah, I think we got around like 12, 10 to 12. Yeah. 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 And I woke up and I don't have a problem driving in the snow. Like, let's get right. New Englander uh, through and through. But I did, I was working a hospital shift today and you know how we have to park in the parking lot and then take the shuttle. Yes. And I knew it was going to keep snowing all day. And I was like, I really don't want to have to like clean off a foot of snow off my car when I get to work. So I just asked John to drive me in. Nice. Yeah. And so he got up at like 4.30 in the morning and he cleared, shoveled the driveway and cleared off my car and he warmed up the car. So it was nice and warm when I got in and he drove me in. And I'm really glad he did because we passed like three car accidents and the shuttle (gasps) in a snowbank. And I was like, I'm really glad I didn't take the shuttle. Oh my God. And there's like a couple car, um, cop cars. I pulled over yeah. to like help the shuttle and one of them gotten stuck in the snowbank too. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Forget about it. Oh, that's wonderful that you had a way in that did not require you driving in on your own and getting stuck. Yeah. Yep. I'm very thankful for that. But, Good. but I find that snowstorms are, you know, once your kids get older and they don't care. Right. Like it's kind of like, ugh, you know, right. Right. Ugh. right. It's pretty yeah. for like a day and then. then right. Gross. And, dirty. Agreed. 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 All right. Let's talk about our favorite of the week. (laughs) As we're recording at Christmas time, my favorite is all of the Christmas cocktails you can possibly make. Mm -hmm. So I have made a bunch of homemade Bailey's Irish cream which has been super fun to make and it's super simple. And if you have it, you'll never go back to buying it. Mm -hmm. Um, It is nothing but sugar and fat and deliciousness that should be consumed by everybody. If you are a drinking functional, functionally drinking person, it's delish. So I was just coming up with my list of things I'm going to pick up at the grocery store tomorrow morning because I don't want to go to the store after tomorrow. Everything will be stuck in the freezer if it needs to be to stay fresh, but I'm not shopping at the grocery store after tomorrow. Mm. I'm making my list and I'm making more homemade Baileys. I'm making uh, Christmas old fashions and I get super excited about being festive with alcoholic beverages at Christmas time. Like it makes me super happy. So because I know this is airing in March, this will give everybody ideas for next Christmas. There are lots of ways to make it super festive and fun without spending a lot of money if you're willing to make stuff at home. Mm-hmm. So that's my favorite of the week is all the Christmas drinking, that all the cocktails. 
Yeah. Sure, you know, there's lots of options for making them non-alcoholic too, which is, yeah. I actually follow a lot of um, bartender accounts on TikTok <laughs> and it's yeah. super fun watching them make these really fancy drinks in very traditional ways. Yeah. Like there's one account I follow and I can't remember what the name of the account is, but they live in a city and they live in a high rise. So the background is always like the window overlooking the city and they'll oh, make like old happy. fashioned drinks that are yeah. the way that they do it is so soothing and calming. I just, I just, uh, just like watching them. And they're not alcoholic. <laughs> no, they're alcoholic, but I still, okay. I just like watching the process yeah. and like the, yeah. the little details that they do to like, they pre-treat the glass with like ice or heat to, to right. help ingredients mix together. Oh, that's the kind of stuff that makes me so happy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just like watching it. I'm kind of weird, I guess. But no, it's yeah. cool. People have like all these satisfying videos that they watch, like yeah. an onion being chopped perfectly or something like that. <laughs> that's what I like to watch, like a drink being made perfectly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So my favorite of the week are Smirk greeting cards. Have you heard of them? I, is that the one that you send me? Yes. Okay. Yes. Tell me more. So my cousin started sending me these greeting cards that were like super funny and cool. Um, And I asked her where she got them and she told me. So I went and I actually ended up buying four boxes of these cards. Like one says punch today in the face with a fist with nail polish. The other one says this calls for drinks. (laughs) Uh, love you, Bish, B-I-S-H. I love it. And Savage. Love it. And we're not the type of family that usually sends out, like, cards because I, I don't know. I just didn't grow up sending out cards. We don't send out Christmas cards, although we do get some a lot less than we used to get because people realized that we weren't sending them cards, so they stopped sending them to us, which I totally respect because boundaries. Um, right. Yeah. But I feel like during covid People are so zoomed out, and it's just really nice to send off, like, a greeting card. They're all blank on the inside, so I've been sending them to friends, like the one I sent you. Yeah, I love that idea. I'm also not great with greeting cards, although I love them. Like, I love the idea of it. I'm just super not organized with anything paperwork. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And- post office and I'm just not. And I wish that I were better with those things, but I'm not. So that's why I don't send out cards very well, but I love these ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're super fun. And I sent out thank you cards for like my baby showers and my wedding weddings. Go me. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't generally like to send out even thank you cards because I feel like, you know, if someone does something nice for you, I'm going to thank them in person or if they get me a gift, I'm going to take a picture of me using it or my kids using it if it's for my kids. So yeah. I just feel like it's more personable. I do. I think so too. And there's a major cost related with greeting cards. They're expensive and post expensive. And I'd rather call them on the phone and say, thank you so much for, or see them and tell them or whatever. I get that. And people are busy. If I give someone a gift or something, I'm not expecting a thank you card. Right. Neither am I. Yeah. You're okay. busy. I know their thing. So that's my favorite of the week. Hey, everyone. I know that having a baby can be a little overwhelming and confusing. If you're looking for a place where you can get all your childbirth prenatal education needs, 
visit ShellyTaftIVCLC.com. Nicole and I are offering right now an online virtual childbirth educating education class, a prenatal breastfeeding class, and we're soon launching a prenatal newborn care class and a prenatal sleep education course. So you can learn all about infant sleep even before the baby comes. So I'm going to drop that link in the notes and you can check it out and we hope to see you there. So now we can on to questions from listeners. Yes. You said we had a good one this week. Yes. So this week's question is about recurring mastitis. The person who submitted it said she's having mastitis repeatedly in the same breast in the same spot. Oh, oof. Mm-hmm. yeah. There's a little bit of PTSD every time I think about mastitis. Yeah, it's rough. I had it twice and that yeah. was enough for me. Yeah, me um, too. Do you want to tell us what mastitis is? Mastitis is an infection in your breast caused by inflammation that may or may not be caused by a clogged duct. Mm-hmm. And it can come on very quickly for most breastfeeding parents, most of the time without warning. Um, you can be totally fine, you know, at 10 o'clock and at 10.01, you've got 102 fever with flu-like symptoms mm-hmm. with a painful area in your breast that is often not always red. Mm-hmm. Right. So any situation where milk is pooling in the breast, like engorgement or a plug duct yeah. and or bacteria has a chance to enter the breast, like through cracked nipples, yeah. yep. you're at increased risk of mastitis. And some women breastfeed for years and never get mastitis and some parents get it repeatedly. So there is a, like a, a factor in play of like how sensitive your body is. Right. And some women get it repeatedly in the same spot in the same breast. But sometimes when that's happening, it's not new infections. It's the same original infection that just hasn't gone away completely. Yeah. Oof. Yep. Yep. And the normal course of treatment is antibiotics. But again, if you have like an infection that's a little bit resistant to the antibiotic, it might not completely get rid of the infection. Or if you don't finish the course of antibiotics, then you may think that you're fine, but then like a week or two later, it flares up again. Right. Exactly. Yep. There's also a lot of research showing that breast microbiome can play a large part. So some studies are showing promising results with probiotics, specifically the strain infantis. I'm sorry, lactobacillus salivaris and lactobacillus fermentum. So that can be a good thing to look into if you're having recurrent mastitis. And in very rare cases, very, very, very rare cases, recurring mastitis can indicate an underlying issue in the breast, such as breast cancer. So if you have repeated cases of mastitis and you've ruled out all the other causes for why it keeps coming back, the next step would be to have a consult with a breastfeeding specialist, a breast specialist. Um, a doctor who specializes in breasts. Yep. Yep. Good idea. That was a good question. Yeah, that is a good question. It's funny just even talking about it. I remember getting it so vividly mm-hmm. um, that, oh, anytime I think someone has mastitis, my heart is for them. Right. But work on it. And the other thing about it is that it comes on fast, but it also you feel better fast mm-hmm. if you take care of as quickly as possible. Right. Like don't wait to get treatment because no. the sooner the better. And I yeah. remember the first time I got it was with Brooke, my first, and I was young and I had no idea what I was doing. And yep. I just knew that I felt sick. And I, you know, asked Dr. Google who told me that yeah. I had mastitis and I called my mom 
and asked her to come pick up Brooke so I could rest, not knowing that the best thing for me to do would be to continuously feed her as much as possible. Surprised I didn't like give myself an abscess or something, which can something sometimes happen. And then the second time I got it, I knew better and I just fed, 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 kept draining that breast, kept the milk moving. Right. That's key. And a lot of people think that you can't breastfeed with it. Not only do they, are they worried about pain or discomfort? There are a lot of moms or parents who feel like they are unable. It's not allowed mm-hmm. that you get mastitis. So you'll pass the infection to the baby. I've heard that a lot of times and that's not the case. Right. It's perfectly safe to breastfeed when you have it's milk. perfectly safe to breastfeed and the more you breastfeed in different positions and work to move the milk along the better mm-hmm. yep so that was a great question thanks for submitting it and if you guys have questions you'd like us to answer you can submit them to shelly at shelly or you can contact me on social media i'm on instagram at shelly taft ibclc and this week we are talking to trish Ware. She is from Labor Nurse Mama, and she's going to be talking to us about assisted deliveries, specifically episiotomies, and how to avoid them. And that's coming up next. Oh, very good. Looking forward to that discussion. So I'm so excited to introduce Trish Ware from Labor Nurse Mama. She is a labor and delivery registered nurse and a mom of seven, and she's here to talk to us today about episiotomies. Thanks for joining us, Trish. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. So like you said, I'm a labor nurse and I'm a mom of seven. I've been a labor nurse for a long time now, since the end of 2007. I am super passionate about education. So I'm excited to be here and talk about episiotomies because I get a lot of questions about that mm-hmm. on Labor Nurse Mama. I started in this career path with so much excitement and I was just gung-ho that I was going to labor women and be a part of birth and I was so excited and then I jumped into it and I was really disappointed because I was seeing women come in who were lacking education, number one, because that can lead to a world of issues when it comes to childbirth. But they were also being coerced into decisions that, um, had they been educated, wouldn't have happened. I watched them not even consenting to things being done to them, just it was being done to them. And they just thought, oh, well, I have to do this, or the doctor knows, and I don't know. And so I really got impas- like passionate about bringing women back to the top of that tier because women belong at the top, not the physician. You're hiring the physician. And in any other area of life, when you hire someone, like you understand that you're the one that's in control of that situation. But in birth somehow, it's become that women hire a provider and hire a hospital and hire the nurses but they feel that they don't have rights and they feel that they can't speak up. Um, Some of the students in my courses, they tell me all the time how scared they are to speak up. And so I just got very passionate about educating women because once they're at my bed, once they're in the labor bed, it's too late. It's, I can do some, Mm -hmm. but I can't do a lot. And when you're in pain, like you're not in the same headspace. So I just started deciding that I was going to help change the mindset because if you can replace that fear and anxiety with education and knowledge, it becomes power. And so 
I'm super passionate about educating women and empowering women so that they know that they belong at the top of that tier, not the position. Yeah, that's awesome. And that's something I say, like I tell my clients all the time, and I mostly work with postpartum moms, but you know, if they're feeling like they're not being listened to by their provider or they're just being dismissed, I tell them, you know, fire them. Yep. They work for you and you can choose. There are abundant of providers, at least in my area, yeah. that you can choose from. And so find mm-hmm. one that actually listens to you and take your concerns seriously and works with you as a team to exactly. figure out the solutions that you're looking for. And if that started to become the norm, then some of these physicians would have to shape up and they would start realizing that they're going to have to practice under evidence-based care because women are more knowledgeable and women know that they can do that because they can do that. They're scared to do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Same with a nurse. If you have a nurse that is not clicking with you during your birth, you can ask for a different nurse. Mm -hmm. You can do that because it's your birth story. Right. And it always frustrates me that because a nurse really can make it or break it. You know that as well as I know. Right. So, yeah. You know. Yep. And how many hours do parents spend like researching strollers? Or, yeah. You know, the new car that they feel like they need to get because now they have a baby that's going to be in the back seat, And then they right. spend, you know, not that much time researching their options and labor and del- like maybe they'll take a childbirth education class, which is great. And I wish the providers would encourage that too. Like I wish OBs would encourage parents and families to educate themselves and give them Mm -hmm. resources to do so. Yeah. The funny thing about that is that insurance reimburses in most cases for childbirth education. Mm -hmm. So I was talking to my husband the other night that if that is the case, which it is, then why? Well, because they know that an educated mama is going to be less likely to have interventions. She's going to be less likely to end up in the OR. She's going to make decisions that are best in her interest, but also best for them because it costs the insurance company less money when you're educated. So it's just really funny to me. That's like a a no brainer. If insurance is willing to pay for education, then it's super important, Mm -hmm. you know? So it means that it's going to be a much better situation for you. So I love telling my readers, like, get educated. Like, they're going to reimburse you for that. And the same with breastfeeding. Like, oh, my goodness. Like, I did a post one time. Like, that is one thing you don't want to go into blindly. Like, that's one thing I found when I became – I had breastfed five babies by the time I was a labor nurse. And I thought, oh, I've got this. I'm going to be so wonderful at teaching this. And then I'm, like, breaking a sweat and crying because I couldn't do it because – it didn't take just my knowledge. It took her knowledge as well. Together, we could do it when she's exhausted from birth. But if she doesn't know anything, it's near impossible. I'm doing all the work, you know, yeah. so. Especially when the baby's first born, that golden hour after the yeah. birth, where getting the baby on and feeding is so important for milk supply. Mm-hmm. But you can't teach a parent everything there is to know right nope. after delivery. Nope. Kind of out of it and mm-hmm. <laughs> exhausted. So, yes. Yeah. And that's why their partner needs to be educated as well in both labor and breastfeeding Mm -hmm. because mom is exhausted. Right. And I think families, it's hard to remember that hospitals are a business, right? Mm -hmm. So, And all businesses for the most part are consumer driven. Like you said, if more families are becoming educated and they're starting to demand from their providers evidence-based practices and lower episiotomy rates or lower induction rates, you know, the hospital is going to follow what the consumers demand. Exactly. And they're going to start treating accordingly because they know that they can get fired. Mm -hmm. 
from their patients. And I think at this point, they know that most women won't do that. Mm-hmm. So why not do what they want? You right. know? Yeah. I was just telling, I've got a new course coming out for VBAC moms and I've got a group of core women that they're, we're doing the course together and they're kind of like my guinea pigs. And we were taught, we do as we call it a a happy hour every Monday, but of course it's for pregnant women. So it's Mm -hmm. a mild happy hour, but we were talking last night about that intimidation and that fear of speaking up and fear of retaliation. And even one of the girls was like, well, the nurses will be talking about me at the nurse's station. I'm like, so what? It's not about them. It's about your birth. And five years from now, instead of dealing with trauma, you can look back at your birth. You're not going to remember that stuff. You're not going to care if they're talking about you at the nurse's station or your OBs mad at you. You're going to care about that birth experience. Mm. So I just really would love to see women feel more empowered to speak up mm-hmm. and not be intimidated by the provider because it's really a sad situation and it can lead to, I mean, birth, I'm very passionate about birth trauma. It can lead to like just a lack of communication during their birth experience can lead to birth trauma. Mm-hmm. So it's just so important. It's just right. such an important thing. And my husband and I were talking about the same thing. Like how much research that, that, you know, women and spouses do on car seats and strollers and all these things, but birth can either, it can adversely affect your child for the rest of their life. Like Mm -hmm. it's a very important thing, like just delayed cord clamping, like all these things that really need to be researched that can really impact the rest of your child's life. It's such an important thing. Right. Yep. I agree. And I tell them the same thing, what you were saying, you know, so what if the nurse complains? Cause in the hospital, I see it all the time. Like the nurse will come back to the break room and be like, Oh, I've got one of those moms with the birth plan, you know, one of those. Yeah. And so she'll like complain for like five minutes and then guess what? Everybody moves on and she goes back and does her yeah. job. So yeah. it's like, it's not anything that's going to affect anything, the parent in a really meaningful way. So no, but a condescending nurse who's not respecting your birth plan will affect you forever. You'll always remember that. I tell mine, I'm like, one or two things are going to happen if you ask for a new nurse. One, you know, as well as I know, there's times when we come to work and like we've brought in our own issues and we might not just be on our game. It's a shame, but we're people and it happens. So one thing might happen is you say, you know, I really feel like, like I try to teach my students how to communicate that in a respectful way. And that nurse might suddenly realize that she's had her head in the sand all day and she's not been on her game and she may sincerely apologize. And then they may bond for life, Mm -hmm. you know, so she may be a really good nurse. who's just brought in stuff from outside or she might be really rude and snippy about it. And then you're going to 100% know that you made the right decision. So I feel like it's a win win situation for the family. Yeah. Because you know, too, like I would be mortified if someone asked for a different nurse, I would not come out to the station running my mouth. Mm-hmm. We both know the nurse who comes out running her mouth. We all know she's that nurse and we already understand that. And we feel bad for the patients anyway. So I feel like just letting them know that they have a right and they have power in that birth room. It's their room. And it's so important Like one of my passions is about fear and anxiety and negativity and how that it can affect your labor. Our body produces hormones that are counterproductive to the labor hormones if we're fearful or we're anxious or we're feeling negative. Mm -hmm. So it's really important that you feel safe in your birth space. Like that's a super important part of birth. Yep. You know, 
I agree 100%. And nurses, doctors, we're all human, right? Right. Come in with our own backgrounds, our own biases, our own assumptions. Right. And we're not going to be the right fit for every patient. We're just not. It's not possible. Yeah, I agree. Okay. So let's talk about episiotomies. Let's start off by defining it for parents who might not be aware of what it is. Can you tell us what it is? An episiotomy is a form of assisted delivery. There's a few different ways that we can assist a vaginal delivery per se. So usually an assisted delivery has something to do with getting the baby down and out. So there's forceps, there's vacuum, and there's an episiotomy. Mm-hmm. Episiotomies are not as common as they were when I first started, when I first started, it was willy nilly snipping everybody, you know, and usually back then it was because of convenience. And I tell my readers and my students all the time, don't let anything be done to you for convenience or curiosity. So basically it's making more room for the baby to come out. So there, the skin of the perineum may be too taut or it just isn't giving. And so they usually will make a, a vertical cut in the perineum between the vagina and the rectum. And the baby usually does come out pretty quick after that. So there have been times that I've seen when it's absolutely necessary. You know, when a baby's down and their heart rate's low and mom is giving everything she can, but that baby really needs to be out. So that's what I teach my students. That that is one time that it really is necessary, but it's basically a form of assisted delivery to help the baby's baby come out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know with my first daughter, she was actually the only one born in a hospital. Um, I had home births after I had her. Oh, nice. But I was really young and my labor was short, although at the time I didn't feel like it was short, but yeah. it was only five hours from start to finish. And Which I was, was first very time. short. Yes. And I only pushed like two or three times before and she they did an episiotomy. Yes. My doctor, my OB who I liked and still like, but she did. She gave me an episiotomy without saying anything to me. So right. I hadn't even realized that it was done until afterwards. She's like, okay, I'm going to have to to stitch you up now. And I was like, yeah. oh, did I tear? And she's like, no, I gave you like a little episiotomy. I and just I gave remember, you a snip. Right, yes, just a little snip. And I remember even as young and naive, like I was one of those moms that didn't even take a childbirth education class. I was just like, oh, whatever, it'll be fine. But I remember thinking even then like, oh, that's weird that she didn't say anything to me. Like yeah. it's weird that I didn't know that that's what was going on. Yeah, yeah. it's that weird sense of control and like that right. they're in charge. Like you made an ins- incision in my body without even saying anything. Yeah, in your vagina. Yes. <laughs> and I really don't believe I needed one because like I said, like the no, she was fine. positive you didn't need one. Right. I know for a fact you were young. Yeah. Had a quick labor, mm-hmm. your body is at its prime. I absolutely 100% believe you did not need one, especially after two or three pushes. And episiotomy should not be done until after a couple hours of pushing. Right. Yeah. yeah. And she was seven pounds, three ounces, and I later gave birth. The rest of my babies are over nine pounds. And I had and you probably didn't even tear. No. Yeah. And how old is she? Because I'm guessing she's at least over 12. He's 16. Yeah, I knew it because when I started, um, that was very common and there was no informed consent and it blows my mind. I'm just going to say, can you even imagine someone randomly cutting penises without informing somebody? Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like it's your vagina. Like it's just blows my mind that that's how it used to be. And it was just so normal. 
Mm-hmm. So normal. I mean, I've always been kind of crunchy, even when I, I had my oldest when I was pretty young as well. And I had a episiotomy. I had an old school doctor. This guy was out of control. My labor nurse, I went in at 36 weeks with a stomach bug, very dehydrated in preterm labor. Mm-hmm. She knew it was dehydration. She knew it was because I was sick. Well, he wanted to induce me. <laughs> and she was like, no. So she hydrated me. She got thinner again. I mean, everything. Well, she ended up being there when I delivered him as well. And she was my greatest advocate. And she's really the reason I became a labor nurse was that nurse because I was a young mom and I was scared and I didn't know how to speak up. And this doctor was horrible, horrible. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that I've seen that. I've seen that with a lot of interventions. Yes. A lot where they just don't say a word. Mm-hmm. And it blows my mind. Yeah. Yeah. And you will, I mean, I'm sure you find that to some extent in other fields too, like other medical fields. But yeah. I mean, I'm sure your GI specialist is not performing colonoscopies on you without your consent. Yeah. <laughs> like it's just, it's I know. Rampant in labor and delivery and the yeah. system. But yeah, it's terrible. And the dialogue too that used to be around the appeasement, like the jokes about, oh, I'll, I'll do the husband stitch. When- oh my goodness. I was just, just talking to someone about that. So when I first started that, and the funniest thing about that is every single husband thinks that they're the first one to say it, mm-hmm. right? It's so nauseating, but I love when the doctors would be like, well, how small do you need me to stitch it up? Or I'm really sorry that you need it to be that much smaller. (laughs) You know, like it's just ridiculous. Like, what are they thinking? Like, how mortifying is that? Like Mm -hmm. your wife just pushed a human being out of her vagina and you're making a joke like that. Right. I don't even... I don't even get it. Yeah. The funny thing is, is if people are educated and understand how incredible our vaginas are and how incredible they go back to how they should be and that they don't need any assistant in that arena, it's really such, it, again, a lack of education mm-hmm. to think that. Like, it's very frustrating to me that people just don't understand how powerful and incredible our bodies are. It's really funny that we're talking about this because today and yesterday, I just started a whole series on interventions and I did a TikTok slash real video today about interventions. And I was basically like, what? You mean you can give birth without an intervention? Like really? It can happen? Yes, you can. We don't, the interventions are necessary. There are absolute times, and I tell all of my students and all of my birth plan students, don't ever go into birth with a hard no or a hard yes, because that's when you're going to get it in your face. Because if you say, I absolutely refuse to have an episiotomy, absolutely will never do that. That is not going to happen. Don't do it. And you're pushing and your baby's heart rate drops into the 40s and they're like we need this baby out now and if i do this you know episiotomy the baby will be out right now otherwise we're going to have to go to the or of course you're going to do an episiotomy because mm-hmm. that's what you need to do to save your child but that's why interventions were in- invented mm-hmm. was because of situations like that somewhere along the line someone realized how convenient it was to just cut the perineum because you didn't have to go through that natural stretching process, which is what you're supposed to do. Right. You know, you had bigger babies. You went through that natural stretching process 
process and it works, right. but it takes time and it's not convenient for someone else. So a lot of these interventions became conveniences for right. someone else. And that's one of my favorite things that one of my friends and I said at work, well, it's not about you. Like we would say that to the baby nurses or we would say that to the provider, you know, like I need to get to a ball game. Well, it's not about you. Right. It makes me sad that so much is done out of convenience or even vaginal exams. Mm-hmm. I was telling my students, like Heather and I, we have a one birth course and then I've got the VBAC course. But one thing we say all the time is nothing out of convenience or curiosity. So when I say curiosity, a lot of times vaginal exams are done, you know, out of curiosity. Mm-hmm. They're not needed. You don't need a vaginal exam when you're 36 weeks pregnant. Right. All it's going to do is set you up for them to begin talking about inductions or them to make you feel inadequate. Because if you're not dilated at all and they're checking you, I must be, I I should be dilated if they're checking me, something should be happening. And then you leave feeling like something isn't happening. Well, that it's too soon because we both know like when your body goes into labor, hormones are released like relaxin. So if you're 36, 37 weeks and they're telling you, oh, well, you're not dilated. We should probably think about this or that, or your baby might not fit. You're really small. Well, they're not factoring in this incredible hormone that our body produces, which is relaxin, which relaxes the pelvis area, makes it wider for the baby to come through. So it's really frustrating when things are done like that, you know, that really make you question your body and question your capabilities and Mm -hmm. that fear in. I tell everyone, don't do a vaginal exam until you're 40 weeks. Don't let them do one in the office till you're at least 40 weeks. Mm -hmm. You're not set up for failure. You know, if you're going to do one, you don't need one until you're actually in labor. Right. So then, you know, depending on what's going on, you don't need that. Right. Yeah. 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 I tell my girls that there are times when you need them. If you're going to have a hospital birth, When you get there, if you think you're in labor, you're going to have to have a vaginal exam because we have to have a baseline. That's a time that's necessary. Mm -hmm. After that, it really is a lot about curiosity Mm -hmm. and getting ready. Like, you know, like some of my students are like, well, don't they need to get my room ready? Listen, we can get those rooms ready real fast if we need to. So, I mean, a good labor nurse is going to have the room ready because she can look at you. A good birth professional can look at you and guess about how far dilated you are. Mm-hmm. based on your demeanor and your, you know, your mental state and, mm-hmm. and all of that. So we've just relied on it for convenience and right. curiosity for our parts. They don't need it. We don't need a vaginal exam unless you're being induced. It's a little different, but there's just so much done that doesn't need to be done. And that's why I'm re- like, I'm doing this series on interventions, including episiotomies and forceps and, and vacuums. Cause there is a time and a place when they are needed. Right. So and I'm always thankful that we live in the part of the world where we have access to these right. interventions for when they are needed. Right. Just how are they being used appropriately and how are they not being used appropriately? Exactly. And are they being consented? Mm-hmm. Because she should have a right to say yes or no. Right. You know, yeah. so. How would one go about avoiding, if a parent wanted to avoid episiotomy, not like a set and stone no, but like right. I'd like to avoid this if possible, what advice would you usually give? There are a few things that I recommend to avoid assisted delivery. Mm-hmm. One is not getting to the hospital before you're in active labor. So staying home as long as possible, because once you're in the hospital, you've got restricted movement typically. 
So restricted movement does not allow the baby to move down properly. It doesn't allow your body to do what it it can do. The other thing I recommend is eating a good, healthy diet. Our skin integrity is really important. So it's important to eat a well-rounded diet to be hydrated. They can do some stuff during their pregnancy, some deep squat sitting, getting on an exercise ball in a squat. Um, they can do perineum massage. Perineal massage. I'm, I'm not like 100% how much that really helps because I, if you're doing it right, it's going to hurt like hell. So I don't think a lot of women really do it properly um, because it's not comfortable. It's very uncomfortable, but there's a lot you can do as far as diet and exercise and taking care of your body to allow it to do what it can do. When you're actually in labor, get to the hospital when you are in active labor. I teach a rule that when it's your first baby, wait until you're four minutes or less apart for your contractions each contraction lasting 60 seconds for up to two hours because then you know you're in active labor and it needs to be consistent. It can't be like every four to five minutes for 30 minutes and then 15 minutes and 20 minutes. It needs to be consistently less than, you know, five minutes, four minutes. If it's your second baby, less than five minutes, 60 seconds for one hour. Don't mess around at that point. But um, getting to the hospital in active labor can hugely benefit your labor and having to have assistance. And then if you are going unmedicated, let your body guide your pushing. Don't push until you're ready. If you don't feel the urge to push, even if you're completely dilated, don't push. Wait and listen to your body because then you're not going to be exhausted. You're not going to be pushing improperly. If you have an epidural, I recommend laboring down. So what that means is when you are completely dilated and they say, oh, you're 10 centimeters, That's not everything you need to know. You want to know what station the baby is at. So if the baby is not zero or positive station, then ask them to labor down because again, assisted delivery is needed when the baby needs to come down or out. So if you let the baby get as low as it can, you're not going to be exhausted. You're not going to be pushing ineffectively. So laboring down is huge for epidural epidural moms. And the other thing is I highly recommend that you push even with an epidural because most epidurals you can feel an urge to push you feel the contraction let yourself guide your pushing i'm not a big fan of guided pushing and being told to push i'm more a fan of listening to mom and letting her guide that pushing The other thing is not to be in a rush don't be in a hurry and so if they want to do an episiotomy because you've been pushing for a while, that's not a good reason. Good reason is if the baby's in distress, that might be a good reason. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, now that being said, if she's done and she doesn't care, that's her choice. Right. So if the doctor says, you know, I can do an episiotomy and we'll be done. And she's like, hell yeah, then that's her choice. Mm-hmm. But if she doesn't want that, then knowing that if the baby's fine and she's fine, then you can push longer. It's okay. It's okay to push longer. So I always have my my patients put in their birth plan. I like to push as long as possible because they don't want to be, they don't need to be limited, you know? And if you have an epidural and you're not pushing effectively, ask if you can labor down again for a little bit, as long as everyone's doing fine. So those are the big things. But I think the biggest is getting to the hospital in active labor. Yeah. Because once you're in the hospital, you're a patient, you know, mm-hmm. and you're strapped to the bed and restricted movement is probably the number one worst intervention that we do 
yes, in the hospital. So, yeah. and as a doula, I would tell my clients that all the time. And if you're nervous about, you know, if a family's nervous about laboring at home, then work with a doula. Yeah. Come to your home and, and well, that's another way to I didn't think about that's one of the things I have listed on my blog post about this is that hiring a doula as well. And if you're newly pregnant, who you choose as a provider can drastically impact your birth mm-hmm. and your chances of interventions. So talk to the provider. Like you can watch their like I don't think women realize they can interview providers. And I'm not talking about that first prenatal where your legs are in the stirrups and you're getting a pap smear. I'm talking about sitting across from their desk mm-hmm. and interviewing them and ask them, well, what are your thoughts about an episiotomy? And if they roll their eyes a little and they're like, oh God, one of them, then you know that's not the provider for you. Right. Yes, having a doula, having an educated partner can hugely impact what interventions happen during your delivery, you know, and pushing positions. Yes. That was my, you don't have to stay in one position. You can move around. Even if you have an epidural, you can try sidelining. We can make, we can put the bed in a squatting position. There's a lot that we can do. You know, the peanut ball helps as well. uh, Well, I feel the peanut ball helps when you have an, I feel like with uh, someone who's unmedicated, it's kind of a moot point Mm -hmm. um, because you can do all those movements naturally by being up and vertical. Um, I think with an an epidural, absolutely. Peanut balls are magical. I'll never forget the first time I used one and I was like, oh my gosh, like it was so (laughs) amazing. Like it really truly is amazing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, but I think the reason it's amazing is because it's mocking natural movement. Mm-hmm. When mama's up and she's getting up and down from the toilet and she's squatting on the ball or she's getting like picking something up off the floor, like all those natural movements we do, you know, you've labored at home unmedicated. Your body may tell you to bend over and, and hang over something or you may sway your hips or doing all those things. So yeah, the peanut ball mocks natural movements. It's not as good as natural movement. But it's a great second for doing that during labor if you're if you have an epidural. I just want to go back to your suggestion to like interview providers because I do feel like that might be area specific too. I know when I had my babies, I tried to interview providers like pediatricians, and I was told, "Oh, we don't do that." Yeah, well, it might be where you're at, but right, that's what I'm saying. If they say they don't do it, then they're probably not the right provider. Exactly. Yeah. And if, I think if you are in an area where providers don't do interviews, then asking other moms who have the same birth goals as you would probably yeah. be, you know, what was your experience with this provider? Or did you feel like they respected your decisions and choices and things like that? So yeah, that's a great thing because there's always a mom's group mm-hmm. on Facebook for your area. And that's a great place because I'm in one. So I might see you and I'm a labor nurse. So I can say, oh, I know a great doctor in Nashville that would be conducive to a VBAC. But another thing they can do is call up to the labor and delivery department of the hospital that they're probably going to deliver at and just say, you know, when the charge nurse answers, be like, hey, I know this is like completely confidential, but if you were going to have a a baby and you wanted to have a VBAC, which doctor would you choose? Mm -hmm. And I know just about every one of my friends would be like, oh yeah. And we know, we know exactly who. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's a, another way they can try. If they don't get anywhere with that, then oh well, but it's a good try, you know? So yeah. I think that's a, 
a good plan as well. But I think a mom's group is good. But again, you might be getting moms who aren't educated or passionate about the things you're passionate about. And what they see as a good provider might not be a good provider, you know? Yeah. And that's a great tip to call the labor and delivery nurse. Or also, if you are working with the doula, I'm sure the doula knows what yeah. with all the providers and can make recommendations. As a doula, I ask that question all the time. Like, well, who do you recommend to support me with a VBAC or things like that? Yeah. I always had a list ready. Yeah, that's a good idea. Interview your doula first mm. before you choose a provider. <laughs> and then when you're interviewing the doulas, ask because the doulas know. They see from the inside. Right. Yep. And I always tell my patients as well when they're interviewing their doulas, I think that's important too, because I think that there are some doulas that are very much against the establishment and you don't want that doula. You want a doula who's going to keep you empowered and educated, but also feeling safe is so important. So if you feel negativity from your doctor, from your nurses, from your doula, from whoever, like that's not the right person for your birth. Mm -hmm. You need positivity and support and someone who's going to stand up for you and your rights. Right. You don't want a doula or any provider that's going to create kind of conflict or tension. In or the division. Atmosphere. Yeah. And I think in anywhere that there's doulas practicing, there's always, you know, that doula. Yeah. And they often have a reputation for being that doula. Yeah. But yeah. and I think if if patients are educated, if mamas are educated and understand that, they'll know when they interview them. I tell my girls it's kind of like when you are planning your wedding and you have that one friend you're kind of scared not to ask or to ask like you know in the long run after you've been married 20 years like man, I'm so glad I didn't have her at my wedding because it really doesn't affect you 20 years from now. But if you choose the wrong people for your birth, to be in your birth experience and all of those key roles you're choosing, you know? So I think it's just so important to know, but you have to know what you want first too, like what's important to you. So you know, what's to interview, mm -hmm. you know, cause to some moms, a lot of this stuff isn't important. Right. It doesn't really face them. So. Right. I know some moms have a lot of fear around tearing. Yeah. So they go in saying, I'd rather have an episiotomy than tear or just give me the episiotomy so that I don't tear. Yeah. No, that's a bad choice because I tell my girls all the time on labor nurse mom, I'm like, let go of that fear because even if you're unmedicated and you're tear, you have no idea it happened, mm -hmm. but I can tell you, you'll feel that episiotomy, whether if you're unmedicated, but with the tearing, you have this sense of numbness anyway as it's stretching. And it really, unless you have a third or fourth degree, which is very rare, very rare. I think I've been, as long as I've been a labor nurse, I've had a very small handful of fourth degree and a small handful of third degree. It's just not super common. First and second degrees are, but they're really not that difficult to heal with. So I think letting go, if other women can like really speak up and let mamas know that the tearing, because I think what happens is everybody fears the tearing while they're pregnant and then they realize it wasn't a big deal and then they don't talk about it. Yeah. So no one's telling everyone else that's now pregnant. It's not a big deal. I promise. So I tell my girls all the time, unless you have a third or fourth degree, which is not very common and you'll deal with it if you have to, tearing is not that bad, but a third and fourth degree is still a third degree is still better healing than an episiotomy. So, you know, fourth degree is rough, but mm -hmm. there's still, you know, just knowing that 
it's not that and pooping. They all get so scared about pooping, which I was afraid of pooping too. When I, when I had my first baby. Yeah, I was too, but I have like this like thing, like I don't even let my husband in the bedroom. Like he has to go out the bathroom, out the bedroom, out. <laughs> but I don't care when my girls poop because I know they're pushing right. Mm-hmm. If you have anything in you and you're pushing correctly, you're going to poop. It's right. going to happen. So I always tell my moms, like, don't fear pooping because here's what is going to happen. If you're pushing to not poop, you're extending your pushing time by a huge amount of time, huge mm-hmm. amount of time. If you push like you're going to poop, you're shortening it a yeah. lot. Yeah. So it's really counterproductive to be scared of pooping. Yes. I would always tell my doula clients, I'm always very happy if I see that you've pooped because yeah. that you're pushing right or right. You know, in a way that's really going to help bring the baby down. Well, and, and I always tell people if they think they didn't poop, they probably did, but they had a good nurse that was quick on the draw because I can't even tell you how many times, like I just take a pad cover, move it. And they have no idea. I'm not like, Oh my gosh, you pooped. You know, like I don't it's say not that a big deal. Yeah. Cause that. it's not it a big deal. To us. All the time. Yeah. Just, wipe it away. That's another frustrating thing though. When the dad comments or brings attention to it, I'm like, really? Yeah. <laughs> With my first, I told my husband at the time, like if I poop, just lie and say that. I didn't. Don't, don't, don't mention it. Anything. Yeah. yeah. I've had dads say some things and I'm like, I just can't even, I can't even believe you just said that really. And I'm being very discreet and they can see that I'm being discreet and they still will bring it up. I'm like, oh my goodness. Yeah. My husband would lose his hand if he said something, if I pooped in front of him. <laughs> I'd be that. If you have a parent that did end up needing an episiotomy, what tips and suggestions would you give for healing? So the number one thing is to utilize that peri bottle. Your, uh, do the, I have a recipe for postpartum padsicles. Mm-hmm. They give you a dermaplast to the spray. I always recommend spraying it on the perineum and then spraying the pad as well. Keeping tux pads in the fridge. Those are like heaven. Mm -hmm. I have a video of of making like your pads, how to do your perineum pads. But the other thing I recommend is a sitz bath. It's pretty old school. They used to always give it to postpartum patients, but it's not as common now. But if you have hemorrhoids or an episiotomy or a tear that required stitches, a, a sits bath is amazing. Mm-hmm. Amazing. I think just, and then really being like cautious on um, not overdoing it, mm-hmm. I think is important. But I think even with episiotomy, like your healing time, our um, perineum is really amazing at how quickly it heals. Mm-hmm. It gets, it goes back to itself soon. But yeah, I think just uh, utilizing those things that they give us in the hospital and ask for all that. If you don't have it, ask for it. They will give them. Oh yeah. The I don't know. bottle is amazing. For me. Yeah. And you, for I sure. asked for an extra one so I could keep one in each bathroom because we had yeah. two bathrooms. So I, yeah, I love them. Yeah. And they can use some different essential oils to make like a um, perineum spray to use. And then just remembering not to rub to pat dry. I think that's important because that can really sting. That can really hurt. Um, and just keeping that area clean. It's really important as well. And the stitches just dissolve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Usually two to three weeks, typically. 
is what they should be. I had a reader just recently ask me how she would know. And I was like, well, I don't think you should be trying to find out. <laughs> just <laughs> let it heal. No problem. But yeah, <laughs> just yeah, don't mess with it. Don't try to be looking at it. You might not be happy if you look down there until it's healed. Yeah. But okay. Is there anything else that you want to add in terms of assisted delivery that you think parents should know? Well, I think with assisted delivery, if you have an episiotomy or you have a significant tear, I think it's really worth your while to look into like a pelvic floor specialist yes. and talk to them. There's several accounts on Instagram. There's several girls that you can follow mm-hmm. and just really focus on, because sometimes with uh, assisted delivery and with repairs in general, you can have some different issues that come up later. So I think taking care of your pelvic floor is really important. Yes. Say it louder for those in the back. Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. And we've talked a lot about with um, like pelvic floor specialists on the podcast before where we really think that ideally every mom would see a pelvic health specialist yeah. at least either during or after pregnancy. It should be considered part of the maternity team. And Yeah, I agree. It's not. So moms have to seek them out on their own because again, like moms are told, oh, that's normal, right? It's normal that right. you still pee your pants or when you sneeze. Yeah. So well, and I should have said that too, in preparing and avoiding a episiotomy, just doing like, well, I did say doing deep squats and getting on the ball, those all prepare your pelvic floor. Mm-hmm. So anything you can do to prepare your pelvic floor, which also includes a healthy diet as well, yes. is really important. It's important. One of the best things that my mom ever told me, my mom is like old school Southern. And one of the best advices she ever gave me was when I was pregnant, she said to always be in a deep squat. So sitting, if I were mopping, she said, mop the floor with a rag and squat. She was like, if you're watching TV squat, and I actually listened to her and I had fantastic deliveries. So Mm -hmm. I really do feel that that played a huge role in strengthening my pelvic floor. And I've had uh, six babies vaginally. One of my children is adopted and um, I have no issues with my pelvic floor. I have never sneezed and peed. I've never jumped and peed. I've never had any problems. And I really contribute that to me unknowingly preparing my pelvic floor. Right. And and doing that also helps the baby get into the ideal position. Right. You're constantly leaning back on your couch or your sofa or your cart, you know, in the car, you're leaning back. That's not really encouraging the baby to go Mm -mm. in the ideal position. Whereas if you're squatting or you're Again, wash. My mom told me the same thing actually <laughs> towards the end of my pregnancy. She's like, just wash the floor on your hands and knees with a rag. And, yeah. you know, yeah. And it's amazing how just your positioning, right, not only prepares your body, but prepares your baby as well. Yeah. Well, if you think about it too, like back in the olden days when women, when they were pregnant, they didn't get to stop doing hard labor because life was different and everyone had to like do their own thing. And so women didn't have the conveniences we have now. They were washing their floor. They didn't have a mop. They had a rag. But my mom was definitely that. And even doing a deep squat, like you feel like your balance is off, do a deep squat on top of an exercise ball, rotate those hips. Like there's just so much you can do at home to prepare your pelvic floor. But I do think there's value in seeking out a pelvic floor specialist Mm -hmm. because they can tell you things. Like I work with the vagina coach all the time and she, I've learned so much. I'm like, oh, wow. 
<laughs> didn't know that, you know, so it's just really amazing, like what you can learn from them. And I agree, insurance should cover it. Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous yeah. that it's not. You should get at least one or two visits with them. Right. I'm sure in other countries you probably do. <laughs> probably. <laughs> not here. Well, this was amazing. It's so nice to hear from a nurse that advocates so strongly for her patients and the families that you work with. Yeah. And advocates for encourage uh, education so much. So I yeah. loved having you here tonight. Can you tell the listeners where they can connect with you and find out more about you? Sure. So you can find me on Instagram at labor.nurse.mama or on my blog, which is labornursemama.com. I also have Loving Your Labor Academy, which is a full birth course and private community. We open enrollment um, only a few times a year. And we do that because we have the community and we are, Heather and I both are labor nurses, very like-minded We're in there a lot educating and walking through their birth stories with them and giving them advice. So when they go to the doctor's appointment and they're not really sure what was said, we can help clarify that a little. And that takes a lot of time. So we are kind of changing it up in January and doing it a little different this year. We changed it a bit because of Corona. We actually finished filming it in February. And then launched in April. So like right when Corona happened. Mm -hmm. And then I also have the VBAC lab, which is launching in January. And I'm super excited about that. I'm so passionate about VBACs. I'm sure you are too as a doula. It sickens me that so many women are discouraged. I was just telling my students the other day that I think it's ACOG. No, it's not ACOG. Maybe the World Health that said 90% of cesarean patients are VBAC candidates. 90%. It's sickening, sickening to me. So my VBAC lab is a full birth course. It's not just about how to have a VBAC. It's birth in general, because I think that that's a key part of having a VBAC, because that might be a key reason why they ended up in a C-section in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to see them. 60 to 80% of VBACs are successful. And the majority of the ones that aren't are because of a lack of education, not because of a uterine rupture, because of not having support. And that is one time that I absolutely say that a woman, if she's going for a VBAC, she needs a doula. Yes. 100%. Absolutely agree. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. And I'll put all those links in the show notes. Nice. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was so nice talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it. And I'm sorry I was a little late. <laughs> okay. All right. Have a nice night. Thank you for joining us this week on the Baby Pro Podcast. Make sure to visit our website, ShellyTapIBCLC.com, where you can check out our online parenting community, The Baby Bistro. You can also follow us on social media at ShellyTapIBCLC on Instagram. If you love the show, please leave a rating on iTunes so that we can continue to bring you amazing episodes. Thanks for listening and see you in two weeks.